could turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. And I had something just kind of an odd announcement. But um, on any given Sunday, we have visitors from other churches. Um, we have our regular people. We have people that are visiting this church, looking at it for their first time as a church that may be come to. Um, I just want to ask that you would please be in prayer for your pastors on Sunday mornings. And not just your pastors here, but be in prayer for the pastors in the community on Sunday mornings. I can tell you as a pastor, there is no time that you face more spiritual attack than when you wake up on Sunday morning. Um, I just woke up and honestly, my, the only thing that was going through my head is I don't want to be here today. And uh, I'm just trying to be honest with you. I am here, so I, I made it. So, um, But I took every attack that is in this sermon and realized all the areas the enemy was attacking me on were the things I'm about to preach to you about this morning. But I don't think I'm unique to that. I think that there are so many pastors that go through the same thing. And I could tell you, um, you can feel it when you're being prayed for, when you're a pastor. But there's a flip side to that. You can feel it when you haven't been prayed for. You can feel that dryness. And um, I just want to ask, please, please be in prayer for your pastors and your leaders. Um, if you're here visiting from another church, if that's all you heard today is you're going to go back and be more prayerful for your, for your pastor, that's, that's awesome. Um, but... And there is a lot of spiritual warfare that goes that takes place on a Sunday, and um, pastors really take a hit on Sundays. So please be in prayer for them. Can we agree on that? Can I get a thumbs up from you guys? Amen. Amen. Okay. So this week we're going to be finishing out our three-week series of taking ownership of your membership. We pushed pause on our series on the Book of Acts, um, but it's not really a stop because what we're considering is these early Christians that invested their lives in the church in the face of tremendous opposition, what their investment looked like when we've considered the reality that as the church was oppressed, it just continued to grow both deeper and wider. So we looked at the church in part of God's plan in the first week, last week, we looked at what it looks like for you to be a healthy member of a church. So what it looks like to take your membership seriously and allowing the Bible to define community rather than cultural consumerism to define community. And this week, we are going to finish out with the type of church worth investing in. And before I get started, I want to give a disclaimer. I'm not saying that any church is ever going to be 100% correct. Any church is going to have blind spots. I also want to say that one of the things that I'm not trying to do here is build us up and basically talk about us and say that's the kind of church you want to be a member of. Kind of like if you were uh, talking to a guy, if you were a lady about uh, some dude that you were uh, attracted to, and he was like, you know, I think that you should really like portly guys that wear brown jackets and have shaved heads and um, never really shave correctly. And um, those are the kind of men that you should be after. Like it would be self-serving, right? You wouldn't want to do that. So we don't want to do that. We don't want to just start describing our church, but hopefully our church falls within the parameters of what a healthy church looks like. 
And we're not going to get into everything that's involved in a healthy church. That's a whole study of theology called ecclesiology where I've taken entire seminary courses on. So we're not going to do it in a 40-minute sermon. Um, but we are going to look at a passage that I think covers a lot of important stuff. So if you'd turn to 2 Peter 1, um, actually the bulk of the meat of our message is going to be on the intro to the passage, which is really interesting. I was asked to speak at a retreat and to do four messages on 2 Peter chapter 1 on character and the famous verses in verses 5 through 8 that talk about all of the virtue that we're supposed to add to our Christian faith. And the pastor was assuming that I was going to do a message apiece on each of those different virtues. But I got to the intro, and it was one of the first times ever that an intro just so grabbed a hold of me that I said, no, this is where I'm supposed to be. And I camped out there, and two of my four messages came out of the first two verses of this wonderful passage before it even hit any of the stuff that he paid me to come and talk about. So um, I didn't do my job there, but hopefully I will do my job here. So let me just ask the Lord's blessing and we'll dig in. God, I pray that as we dig into your word, Lord, that you would just take all of that spiritual warfare and just hide it behind your cross, Lord. Cover it with the blood of Jesus. I pray for the other pastors in this area who are still preaching the gospel, who are in the pulpit right now, Lord, that you would empower them with your spirit. And Lord, that we would hear of many places across this area uh, an awakening of your gospel going forth. So I pray that this morning would be a morning of empowered preaching both here and in the churches that surround us, Lord. Um, it's getting increasingly less and less for churches that hold to the authority of your word and your truth. I pray that those that do would receive the blessing and bestowment of your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So in a healthy church, we're going to see, well, first look with me at verses 1 and 2, and then I'll tell you what we'll see. Simon Peter, a servant, apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So in a healthy church, if you're looking for the kind of church for you to invest in, in a kind of church that's healthy to be a part of, in a healthy church, leaders see themselves as servants of the Lord, servants of the people, and servants of the communities, not as people who are supposed to be served by their churches. It happens all the time. A pastor gets way too big for his britches, and he gets himself in trouble because he forgets who he has been called to serve. It's something that happens in very large churches where some leader thinks that they're more significant than they actually are just because there's a lot of people sitting out in the pews. So they forget that all they are is just a sinner saved by grace and that they are not more significant than anybody that they consider themselves more significant on. And they forget about the grace that they were saved by and begin to think that they have some other degree of importance. And they can even begin to become abusive towards those who are they supposed to serve or serve alongside of. And this is the kind of stuff that makes it to the news. 
or that people talk about or blog about or makes it the social media when people talk about the things that mar the witness of the local church. And also, a dirty little secret, it happens in small churches too. You know that in the five years since I moved back here and planted a church, I've been offered eight different church buildings. And a lot of them were churches that were struggling, that were dying. And then you begin to go in and you start to dig around and find out why these churches are struggling and dying. And you begin to see a toxicity that the pastor just will not relinquish. That there has been just an abusive control that he has had over that congregation for so long. So for you to come in and actually start to poke around and uncover the books and ask people questions would mean that he would actually have to be account accountable for killing the church. So in each of those incidences, when they've said, can we work together? I've said, well, sort of. You're the person that killed the church. So the person that killed the church isn't going to be the one that's going to stay here and help us revive the church. So it would first mean your departure is necessary. And that conversation doesn't usually go well. Um, but, and I'm not saying that all small churches, that there's abuse. But I'm saying abuse is something that can happen in large churches. It's not just the celebrities that you hear about. It can happen in small churches as well. So this letter starts with Simon Peter who some within the church probably hold to be of high position, and he's reminding them that he's of no position at all whatsoever. He's just a sinner saved by grace. He's a servant just like they are, no more, no less. And that's pretty wild to think about even today. Listen, we live in an area where 77% of the people living in our community hold to a religious system built off the fact that they believe that Peter is in fact something more special than you or me that he was the first pope, that he was unique from other Christians. And even during the Apostles' Day, you had people thinking that the Apostles were some sort of heroes. I mean, in a couple of chapters, we're going to be looking in Acts and seeing how somebody comes up to the Apostles and tries to buy the gifts of the Holy Spirit from them because he has a misunderstanding of this new power that they possess. Or we see the people later in Acts trying to just bring their sick into the street so that Peter's shadow can be cast over him, so that the sick can be healed. And towards the end of the book of Acts, Paul had to remind the people of Malta that he was not a god in any way. He was just a messenger of the one true God. And he came to tell them about Jesus. So other people saw them as some sort of big deal. Other people certainly saw Peter as a big deal. So you could understand if Peter began to believe the hype and believe the press clippings and believe those people that actually thought that he was some kind of hero, but that's not how he introduces himself. He simply says, hey guys, I'm Peter, the dude who has the same standing as you have. Nothing special about this guy up here just because I'm facing this direction and you're facing that direction. Nothing different about me. He does it again in his letter, his other letter, 1 Peter. He does it in 1 Peter 5. In that section, he's writing to elders of the church and he calls himself just a fellow elder and another fellow shepherd of the church, meaning that he was talking to the other elders and pastors and he was saying, I'm just like you. I'm just one of the pastors, just like you. One of the elders, just like you. My job is the shepherd, just like you. So this does begin into the first piece that we see about a church being a healthy place to be a part of. The leadership should see themselves as nothing special. Just sinners saved by grace 
called to tell the world about Jesus. As somebody said, we are a bunch of nobodies called to tell everybody about a somebody. That's all that we are in Christ. Critical that this chapter that's so well known for having the list of virtues that we're supposed to do starts out with pointing out this identity of being a servant. As a Christian, listen, get this. Servant is something that we are, not something that we do. It's not like you serve enough and finally you cross over this tipping point and now you can be called servant. As a Christian, servant is who you are. It's part of your identity in Christ. Listen, your Savior is the perfect example of being servant to all. Your Savior, one of the most common titles that he referred to himself as when he came and walked the earth was a servant who came to seek and save the lost. Your savior, if you read the Old Testament prophecies about him, particular, I'm thinking of Isaiah chapters 40 through 66, the term servant is the title that's used more than any to describe him. So to take on the identity of Christ is to take on the identity as servant. A non-serving Christian should be a non-existing thing. Just like I said last week that a nasty Christian should be an oxymoron, that it's just a billboard for atheism and it should not exist, a non-serving Christian should be a non-existent thing. It should be an oxymoron. If the church loses sight of the fact that they're, ser that they're servants, that is not a healthy place to join. Heck, if the church loses sight of the fact that they're servants, that's not a healthy place to even pastor, let alone to join. I don't understand pastors who serve in the churches of, we pay you a good salary, so go and be a servant to the body. That's nutso land, in my opinion. Like, that's the kind of stuff that should happen in Texas and nowhere else. And a church that has the 80-20 rule that should never happen either. The 80-20 rule, in case you've never heard it, it's that 20% of the people in the church do 80% of the work. That's nuts. How could a place that's supposedly supposed to be primarily Christian have 80% of the people living outside of the identity that Christ has called them to? So either those folks ain't saved and they need somebody to give them a reminder and if you think I'm speaking too strongly, wait until you see Peter's language at the end of this passage. Or they are saved and they're lazy, like the Thessalonians, and they need a reminder. And Paul gave a strong one. He says, look, here's the deal, man. You don't work, you don't eat. So he told the Thessalonians pretty clearly. He was just saying, if you want to be lazy, that's fine. Just starve. That'll be the consequences of your laziness. So I'd ask you before we move on, do your leaders model servitude? And are you living out your identity as a servant? Next, we see that the leaders are on equal standing as everyone else in the church. Look at this. Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to, a they, to those who have a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. I really want you to let that sink in for a second. This is Peter. 
This is the apostle right here. And now he seems like he's gotten over some of the embarrassing things that marked his early walk in Jesus. And he's writing to this messed up church filled with messed up people. And he's telling this church that's filled with messed up people, as you're about to see in the text as it goes further, that each of them who have believed in Christ have obtained a standing that is equal with his. So no name Timmy that just got saved a couple of weeks ago and he's sitting in the back of the church hungover because of some poor decisions that he made last night and still full of regret and condemning himself because he can't get over his porn addiction. Guess what? That guy and Peter have equal standing according to the way that Peter introduced this letter. This little old lady that quietly just loved Jesus her whole life and never ventured too far, off in, too far off into any areas of character mishap, she's obtained a faith of equal standing with Peter, of equal standing of messed up Timmy sitting in the back of the church hoping that nobody will notice him, and with Jesus Christ himself, according to 1 Peter 1, 1, and 2, because the equal standing was not obtained on the basis of our righteous living. The faith of equal standing is ours because the standing was secured through the righteousness of Christ, not our ability to be standing righteously. So hopefully you guys get that and you can really think through the radical implications of this. I always wanted to pastor a messy church, not a place filled with stained glass saints. I've always believed that I would pastor the kind of church that my counseling load would always be through the roof because we've reached messy people that deal with messy things and they carry around a bunch of messy baggage. And I'm sure that that's not just our church. That should be the same for any church that actually believes in the gospel of Jesus because the church is not a museum for good people. It's a hospital for sick people. And may we never forget that. Amen? So the people that have come here, you... I'm not talking theoretical people in theoretical seats. You who have come here with various struggles, even if, you're, even if you think that you're the only person that's struggling, and let me just tell you, there are people sitting here right now that think that they are the only person struggling. I know it because I was the person that sat in church thinking, these people, they, there's no way they could be doing what I'm doing. There's no way they can know what I'm done. Of course, I'm the only person struggling. I know this because I spent years of my life judging my insides by other person's outsides, and I still do it sometimes. Anybody ever fall into that? You don't have to raise your hand. We won't judge you if you do, though. So I come as a person where I look at this passage, and I look at all these moral imperatives, and I could just see where I fall short, or I could look at a Dr. Joe or a Jerry Franklin or a Pat Batchelder and say, those guys are pillars of the church. They never mess up. I'm never going to be like any of those people. And look at this person. They always seem like they have it together. But all that means is their outsides are always prettier than my insides. But according to this verse, that through your faith in Jesus, you've obtained an equal standing to that person that you don't think could ever be as messy as you are. 
So you who got into a fight with your wife on the way here, on the way to church, how holy was that, right? You're in the same standing as the couple that was blasting and singing worship songs on the way to church. It's not like we have two entrances. (laughs) You guys come in the side door if you fought on the way to church. And you guys that were worshiping on the way to church and only listening to Christian stations, like a proper Christian, can enter into the front. And if you're like me and you may have been listening to Led Zeppelin to get you fired up to preach, then you can come in through the side door. <laughs> the cross is the great leveler. It's, it's awesome. I mean, there's no steps leading up to the cross. It's not like there's very righteous people who are the Babe Ruth of morality of hitting home runs, and they're on the higher steps. And then you have the poor schlubs like me who are still struggling with areas of their sanctification on the bottom steps. I've actually seen that. If you've ever seen the steps in Rome where the people crawl up penitently on knee after knee, step after step, what they're doing is I am a righteous worm starting at the bottom trying to obtain the righteousness that I'll eventually get when I get to the top. So there was actually a physical picture of this metaphorical reality that I'm preaching to you. I saw it when I got to be in Rome. There's no such thing. There's one cross, which means that there's one equal standing for everybody, according to Peter in verse 1. Peter knew that he was writing to a messy church because there's no such thing as a not messy church. There's some churches that don't think that they're messy, or they fail to see the transparency of their messiness. But guess what? Jesus, if you read the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, actually gives his harshest criticism to the churches that were messy, but were so messy that they couldn't even see their messiness because they thought that they were awesome. And they thought that they were so awesome that their awesomeness blinded them to see how unawesome they really were. If you go through great lengths to try to hide your messiness from other people, then you're probably messier than the people that you're going to great length to try to hide your messiness from. Did you get that? Because I don't know if I could say it again, because I just made it up on the spot, and I think it was brilliant. So, (laughs) (laughs) that'll be a first. Oh, man. Even though the church is filled with people in various places in their sanctification, and in their development, and in their character, he still addresses them of people who all have the same equal standing. But he can't say this uh, with just his confidence. The reason he can say this is because the righteous standing was obtained not by their own righteousness, which leads us to the next part of a healthy church. A healthy church will preach that our equal and righteous standing They will preach about that regularly as a regular part of how they preach the gospel. So the reason that we've obtained an equal standing is that our standing was purchased by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Reading on in verse 1, to those who obtained the faith of equal standing that we just went over, of ours, with the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So the reason that we have equal standing is because our standing was purchased by the righteousness of Christ. So we have one standing, and that's the standing of Jesus. That's our standing. 
So according to this verse, when Jesus looks at your standing, he doesn't say, well, this guy, he's struggling, so his standing with me is in some trouble. But this girl over here, she's doing great, so her standing with me is amazing right now. But if you do this or that, you could get back in my good graces, and once again, you can also have good standing with Christ. I'm going to let you in on a little history lesson, and I realize what that sounds like in a room. To some people, that lo- like the nine of you that love history, or they're like, yay, a history lesson, and the other 150 of you are probably going to take a nap right now. So that's all right, but I'm going to let you in on a little history lesson real quick. In the third century, there was this emperor named Diocletian, and during Diocletian's reign, he made this decree that you had to bow down to the emperor, light incense, and proclaim that Caesar was Lord to the glory of God, or you would be executed right then and there. And the church was growing wildly. So he was doing this as an attempt to snuff out the church and be able to call people out of this thing that was growing and pulling people out of the pagan temples because the pagan temples and the selling of sacrifices was how Rome Rome funded their war machine and funded the growth of their empire. So these men would do it, but then obviously they'd be eaten up and convicted afterwards. So after escaping their death sentences, they would just try to reassume their positions as bishops or priests in the church. So an early bishop, a man named Cyprian of Carthage, said, no, 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 no. It it can't be that easy. It's not that simple. How do we know that you're sincere? How do we know that you proclaim Caesar is Lord, that that's not what you really believe? Or how do we know that you really believe that Christ is Lord? So you should do some act of contrition in order to regain, regain your former standing. And Cyprian called this act of contrition in Latin penance. Anybody ever hear that term? And penance, because of that, I would actually say that this movement of Cyprian right there was probably, although it had good, deci- good intentions, might have been Satan's greatest victory in the history of the entire church. I remember when I did my first teaching on membership and talked about the necessity of repentance, and people were just looking at me with this very scared look on my face, and I said, how many of you, when I say repentance, are hearing the word penance come out of my mouth? And it was like 35 out of 40 raised their hands because that's what they were familiar with. That was the religious system that they grew up in. And penance is, I'm going to give you enough of X, do these, and then you can be right with God again and once again obtain your standing that you lost because of something that you did. And the reason why I'm saying that what Cyprian did is probably the most evil thing that's ever happened in the history of the church is because from that point forward, it began to be taught that our standing was based off of how penitent you were in order to be able to maintain your position in Christ. Listen, you will never be penitent enough to be able to maintain your position in Christ. As I preached last week, George Whitfield said in 1740, even my repentance needs repenting of. There's no way you could ever be repentant enough for your repentance to be the thing that anchors you 
to Jesus, and even those of us that have not grown up under this system have inherited plenty of the baggage from it. Look, according to this verse and many others, our standing is based on his righteousness, not our righteousness. So we don't make ourselves righteous through penance or acts of contrition. We don't make ourselves more righteous through excelling in areas of moral character. We don't make ourselves less righteous when we have misstepped in an area of character because we did nothing to make ourselves righteous to begin with. This is the third piece that I'm preaching so far for a church to be a good church to be worth investing in. It should be led by those who are aware of their identity as servants. It should be taught and practiced that we are of equal righteousness because our unrighteousness is imputed by Christ and not of ourselves. And it should be regularly a part of our preaching that our standard in Christ is being accomplished through Christ's righteousness, not anything that we should do or anything that we can do. And if that's not being preached, that's not even a gospel preaching church. If a church is calling you to live a righteous life, but the focus is on you achieving righteousness rather than Christ achieving righteousness on your behalf, that is not a gospel preaching church, folks. Because I fear that many of us, when we consider Christian character, think that our standing with Christ has more to do with you being righteous than Christ being righteous on your behalf. And that's the opposite of what this verse says. Our character doesn't make us righteous. Christ's character made us righteous. If you don't have that, you don't even have the gospel. So our character doesn't create our standing. Christ's standing created our standing. And being found in Christ is what creates our standing. So Peter starts off this section where he's going to call messy people to live righteously by telling them that they're already seen as being righteous because of Christ's righteousness that covers them. Which leads us to the fourth aspect of a good church, that a good church will be reminding us of what we have been given positionally, not just progressively. And it wasn't until I studied this passage in detail for the retreat that I was leading where I saw the importance of the order that it was written in, not just exegetically, but theologically. This passage is really well known, but it's really well known for the list of Christian character in verses 5 through 8, which says, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, your self-control with steadfastness, your steadfastness with godliness, your godliness with brotherly affection, your brotherly affection with love, and so on and so forth. And it is one of those checklists that people love to go to, especially if you're sitting here and you're a Pharisee. Pharisees love a good checklist. There is nothing that a Pharisee loves more than a checklist because they can look at that checklist and say, well, check, good Christian, check, good Christian, check, good Christian. It could have nothing to do with their affections for Jesus Christ whatsoever, but if they can scratch off that they've done all the things on the checklist, then they've met the qualifications of being a dynamic Pharisee, that could be the danger of checklists. We can go through them, and as long as we're doing everything fine in our own estimation, then it can actually make us quite self-righteous. But if you examine the list in Scripture like this one, the author always focuses on our relationship with Jesus. Then the lists are things that grow out of our relationship 
with Jesus. So here we have four verses where Peter's reminding them of what it means to be in Christ before he even once tells them something that they should do in Christ. He reminds them that your justification has to precede your sanctification. It drives me nuts when this is presented backwards. When people try to change people's behavior before God has even had the opportunity to change someone's heart. It reminds me of this situation I had when I was in my first pastorate. There were this handful of people that were coming in. Our church was right on the beach. And there were this handful of girls that were coming in who were dressed very immodestly. They weren't saved to my knowledge. Maybe one or two of them were. And a couple of women called me at the church. And when I say angry, that's an understatement angry, asking, hey, what are you going to do about it? When are you going to preach a sermon about it? So I called a mentor because I was stuck and I didn't know what to do. And this guy gave me some advice that was gold. He said, Eric, if you preach a sermon about this, you're just going to show those unsaved women that you care more about what's on their outside than what God is doing on their inside. And you're going to validate the self-righteous women who called you, who would rather see these women clothed in proper church attire than clothed in Christ's righteousness. Whew. Blew my mind when he said, so I said, well, then, uh, I mean, that's beautiful, but what do you suggest that I do? And he said, I would suggest that you tell these angry women to not forget that Titus 2 is in their Bibles also, and it makes it clear that they should invite these women out and actually care for their souls rather than judging them. And maybe after God gets a hold of their hearts, then maybe you don't even have to try to change their behavior because the Holy Spirit will be the one that does it. Or if you do have to try to change their behavior, you'll be coming alongside of something that God is already doing internally and not trying to behaviorally modify a non-Christian into looking like a Christian. So there's really two aspects to getting this point, regardless of how the church is supposed, uh, regarding how the church is supposed to assist us in Christian growth. They're supposed to be reminding us positionally who we are in Christ, and then they're supposed to be reminding us to progressively grow out of that. But number one has to proceed. Number two, if a church tries to make you believe that you're pleasing him on a daily basis, this is what makes him love you positionally, then they are not even preaching the gospel, and they are not worth being at. And then next, Peter reminds them that they are called to cherish what, what we're called to cherish, which is his divine glory. His divine power has granted to us all of the things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted us every precious and great promise so that through them you may be become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world because of sinful Desire. So Peter's already demonstrated humble intro, uh, humble leadership in the intro. Humble leaders can point people to Jesus because they want his glory and they don't want their own glory. They want to decrease so that Christ can increase. I want to see all glory go where glory belongs not see a glory shift. One of the biggest differences you notice in reading sermons from years ago to listening to sermons now is the lack of focus about God's glory and messages that are preached in 2016. 
some of the sermons that are known in books. If you go into the bookstore and look at the books that are on there, some of the sermons that are known historically as the greatest sermons ever preached are just completely about God's glory. And I fear that if I preached a sermon that was only about God's glory, that people would be bored because it had very little personal application for them. And some people would be bored to tears. A healthy church reminds us constantly through the knowledge of him that we are called to be partakers of his glory. And anything else is just shortchanging what we're calling the people to less than what God is calling them to. And a short tangent, and sometimes even the application and the way that it's taught or caught can demonstrate what we really glory in. I think every sermon should have application. Let me make that clear, okay? But some passages, the application is simply that we are supposed to see God as increasingly glorious. That's the application of the whole passage. You don't have to import another application in it so that somebody can go home and feel like they have something to do on Tuesday to follow up with the sermon. But if you leave church feeling like you were not given an application because the application was that we should cherish and glorify God, then we have a glory shift. I want the application to be relevant to me. Well, the, if the glory of God is not relevant in your Christian life, then you really have a glory problem going on in your Christian life. A healthy church should remind people of where healthy growth starts. And I'll, uh, I'll try to bang through the rest of these in five minutes here. Um, he says... For this very reason, in verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. So before he gets into the list of character, he starts off with the foundation of faith. The list has to start off by faith. And I love how he uses the word supplement for the rest of the areas of character that he's about to teach on. Look, supplements are important. How many of you here take a supplement of some sort? I want a show of hands. Okay. So that's most of you. Take some sort of supplement. But guess what? Supplements are not supposed to replace the meal itself. That's why they're called supplements. They're supposed to be supplements, not the main building block. They're not supposed to be the main course. You ever meet somebody that's on one of those wacko diets, and they're like, all I do is eat kale for breakfast, take supplements for lunch, and eat ice cubes for dinner, and I've lost 10 pounds this week. Yeah, well, no, duh. <laughs> But then what happens? Within a few weeks, they're back to stuffing their pie hole with Twinkies and cheesesteaks because we're not supposed to live on supplements. So he tells them, before you start focusing on your behavior, make sure that it's coming out of faith. If faith is not producing character, then it's not lasting character, and that character is not rooted in Christ. So as a church teaches on Christian character, it should be teaching that the foundations of that character is faith in Christ. And if that's not the foundation, then they're not teaching a sufficient foundation. Character comes from a faith that Christ is glorified. Character comes from a faith that in the end, Jesus will be enough. Character comes from faith that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. In other words, a solid church will always remind people that the development of our character is directly tied to the gospel and cannot be separated from it. That we can it's not what we can do, but what Christ has done 
for us. And then you call them to a life of Christian growth and character. But you're always grounding those things in things that are uniquely Christian. Yes, every calling, every virtue should be grounded in what Christ has already accomplished. That doesn't lower the bar for holiness, folks. It increases it because it anchors it in true holiness, just as Peter did in this passage. So he says, add to your faith virtue. Virtue is kind of an odd word because we don't really use it today in our culture, but it's the same word that the Septuagint translates in Proverbs 31 when it's talking about an excellent wife who can find her. It's the word excellent that's translated there. And the context is fitting because if you read the rest of Proverbs 31, it's really talking about a woman that is striving for excellence, a woman of excellent moral fiber, if you will. And what a beautiful term we have listed here right after faith that's borrowed from a passage like that. And you put it all together and it's saying, add to your faith the striving for excellence. And then it says, add to your virtue, supplementing that with knowledge. What kind of knowledge? It should be the kind of knowledge that's able to keep us both humble but infatuated at the same time. That's biblical knowledge. When we are able to be in awe of Jesus, but in awe of our need for Jesus at the same time. That's when it's true knowledge. And then supplement your knowledge with self-control. How critical is it? that knowledge is immediately tempered with self-control. Has anybody ever taken their knowledge on something and not used self-control with it? Has that ever been done to you when you sit with somebody and they're very knowledgeable and they're telling you a bunch of stuff and you're like, you're really smart, um, but this conversation felt like it was a punishment for something that I've done in a past life. Not that I believe in past lives. (laughs) Just a joke. (laughs) A joke, but and with our sinful nature, if we don't add self-control to our knowledge, we would be a bunch of big-headed fools. And then he says, add to your self-control steadfastness. So this is particularly important when you're overcoming addiction or addictive behavior. Listen, if you're here today and you're struggling with addiction to something, pornography, substances, um, food, whatever that addiction might be. Addictive behavior is usually just ingrained, repetitious behavior of, self, of, of sin, and self-control is not enough. You can't just tell somebody, go do self-control, then you won't do addiction anymore. There needs to be steadfastness that's added to that self-control, being resolved by God working in us and through us that whom the Son has set free is free indeed. And no temptation has seized you but that which is common to man. And whenever tempted, he will provide a way out. This, again, is where faith is critical in the development of character. And it's not just pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps. Because to overcome addiction and to be steadfast in my areas where I need self-control, I need to have faith that Jesus is enough In those times when I don't feel like Jesus is enough. In those times when I feel like I need to run back to that thing that took me out of myself for a moment. And I don't want to be in my skin anymore. And I don't want to feel like this anymore. I need to have faith and be steadfast in it that Jesus is enough even at that moment when he doesn't feel like enough. 
And then it says to add to your steadfastness godliness. Godliness is a, is a God dependency, whereas steadfastness, it, it, it takes your steadfastness and it grounds it in the gospel and in a God dependency. So Peter is exhorting them to have a steadfastness that's grounded in God dependency, a true belief that says it really wasn't me. It was really all God that did that. And we're not being phony. We really believe it. And then he goes on to say to supplement your godliness with brotherly affection. And that's probably my favorite one in the progression here. Before I was a Jesus lover, I was a hippie. And um, you know, hippies don't do a lot of things right, uh, besides to recycle. Um, they're really good at that. Um, but one thing they are really good at is being kind to one another. So it actually really threw me for a loop when I became a Christian. And I noticed that I know a lot of non-Christians that are nicer to one another than a lot of Christian people are. They, I really had a hard time with that. It was, probably the very, it was probably the first struggle I had in my faith, to be honest with you. And he's saying, add to your faith brotherly love and affection and then he caps it all off with love so I just want to take a second and just probe your heart and ask how's my love been and maybe it's just because I've tasted non-loving Christianity and I didn't like it but I love the stern admonishment that he gives in the next verse he's saying without love it renders your faith useless fruitless and ineffective because that's not gospel Christianity. It's curmudgeon churchianity, and there's a big difference. And Peter compares the refusal to live according to the gospel to forgetting, and this is what I'll close with. He says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Why spend the whole message talking about what the church is supposed to be from a passage primarily dealing with Christian character, but spend the whole time talking about what Christ has accomplished on our behalf? Because Peter says right here that people who live in a way that disregards the way that he's telling them to live, are living as if they've forgotten the gospel. They've forgotten what they were in this for. They've forgotten the fuel. They've forgotten the motivation. Now, have they forgotten the facts of the gospel? Can they still recite to you, Jesus Christ died on a cross, he rose again, it says so in the Bible, I can recite to you John 3.16. He's not saying they forgot that. They probably didn't forget it. Some of these people may have even been witnesses of it. He's saying that you're living in such a way where you might as well have forgotten it because it is not penetrating your life and the way that you live with other people. So, a couple of application questions as I ask the band to come on up. Has your identity in Christ resulted in an identity as a servant? And does your service point to your identity in Christ rather than trying to define yourself by your service? Have you fallen into judging your insides by somebody else's outsides? How would focusing on the fact that we have an equal standing in Christ help that? Are there areas where you're living like you have forgotten that you have been cleansed from your former sin? How can we as a church stir you up by way of reminder to gaze back on Christ and be reminded of the one who made satisfaction and purification on your behalf? 
and remind you that this whole thing is supposed to be about Jesus. This is a Jesus thing, folks. Jesus, thank you so much for reminders to stir one another up. And I pray that we would be stirred up today as we worship, Lord, that we would worship as people who are stirred up. And I ask this in Jesus' name.